get an inside view of the latest private equity deals and the people behind them and meet the people who make it happen. Welcome to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Host Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team 6 members interview company founders who have succeeded and some that haven't. Each show will feature lively interviews with company founders to find out whether there is a deal or no deal. Now here is Kevin Fechtmeyer and his team of experts. Hello, this is Kevin Peckmeyer, Cracking Private Equity Code here, and uh, this uh, episode will be dealing with everyone's favorite topic, borrowing money, and uh, there wouldn't be a private equity market if there wasn't a leveraged market, uh, banks and uh, lenders that are willing to loan money to leverage buyouts, that's the L in LBO. So I, I've got a great guest we'll talk about at the uh, at the next uh, three parts of the show, but I wanted to sort of kick off today's uh, episode with uh, just a, a casual but important observation. Everyone's focused on the public market this week, and uh, the stocks have been skyrocketing up and down a thousand points here and there. And what's really nice about the private equity market is that we don't care. Uh, we're, we're not looking at this as a barometer of value, and it doesn't really affect our market. So a lot of companies who rely on the public markets uh, for financing dread these kinds of days, and the disruption can bleed into weeks of uncertainty around, you know, the processes that larger companies use to raise money. Our our market is is a pretty stable, steady market. We don't get influenced nearly to the effect that the public markets do by these kind of panic gyrations. Um, and uh, I guess our view is that that this has not changed our perspective of the market, perspective on investing. Um, the market kind of went from way overvalued to slightly less overvalued. Um, in the private equity market, uh, we are always looking for long-term values. These are you know, five, 10-year average valuations. So when the market spikes up or down, uh, we don't look at those as, as changing our valuation viewpoints. For the, for the most point, uh, private equity investors tend to look over multiple years. And when we're looking at deals, and we're going to talk about a couple today, um, we always look at uh, what we can do to leverage the, uh, the uh, transaction. So um, if you buy a house and you borrow 80% of it and the market uh, value of that house goes up by 100% over your ownership period, you've made a lot of money. Um, your 20% down payment is now worth uh, 120% of what you thought. And, you know, the benefit of leverage uh, for stable cash flow generating companies is, is absolutely critical to driving returns in the private equity market. And a lot of the business owners and founders that we run into are terrified of debt for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, personal guarantees, just uh, family stories about uh, family members who got into debt and went bankrupt. Um, oftentimes, it's a very emotional decision as to whether to raise debt for a company uh, or not, or how much. And what we're doing here is talking about what the right mix of debt and equity is for a private equity investor, and what your company can sustain and prosper under you know under what kind of uh, balance sheet um, you know you can sleep at night, but still get some leverage to your equity returns because. Candidly, we're not in venture capital. You know, we're not talking about venture capital on this show where companies grow by 10, 20, 100 times. It's, uh, these are companies that are middle market, uh, middle of the road, U.S.-based companies for the most part, although it's obviously an international market 
last year, most private equity dollars actually were invested outside of the United States, an interesting statistic. But um, here in the US, the 20 to $200 million company is really the backbone of our business. And uh, today we've got a lender from a regional bank, uh, Alliance Bank. Matt James is uh, Vice President of Lending for Alliance Bank, is gonna talk to us a little bit about how he looks at potential lending candidates and how he looks at them differently if they have a private equity sponsor and if they don't. So it's an important uh, way to look at uh, lending when you know, you're know you a business owner and you know, you've got to manage your cash. Uh, bank is critical to helping you do that. And um, we're gonna ultimately talk a little bit about uh, not just Alliance Bank, but about the whole banking community. Who do you, who do you call, who do you talk to in the banking world today to get a sense of what your cost of funds are and how much flexibility you need, whether you need um, a term loan or a revolver. And there's a little bit of, of you know mechanics in there we'll talk to a little bit, but more about how do you pick a bank and how do they pick you? And uh, I wanna give Alliance Bank uh, a, you know, a bit of a plug here because they've been one of the handful of very strong regional banks we've worked with in the past. And I, I think that's gonna be really important for middle market entrepreneurs, particularly here in the Southwest where they operate to, to really evaluate and look because some of the big banks that get all the press aren't always the best uh, banks to, to use when you're looking at uh, a middle market buyout. And a lot of uh, us in the private equity sponsor community have come to realize that. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a time and place for every bank. We've used both the big banks and the regional banks and sometimes we mix and match and have them both in a deal. And so we can talk a little bit about that. So we're going to let you know Matt talk about Alliance Bank and his role and, and some of the kind of deals they do and how they like to see deal structured. And then the third episode is, frankly, how, how to select a bank and how does a bank select you? And that's going to be a little bit about what we're, uh, you know, we're going to be focused on because that, that's critical. If you pick the wrong bank, it can be a real problem. And a lot of banks you know, will represent that they've got flexibility in some areas and then they end up not having any flexibility you know, due to circumstances sometimes in our control, sometimes outside of our control. Um, Matt, Matt, can you hear me okay on the, on the line here? Yes, I can, Kevin. Okay, great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you. What, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, I'm just outlining the show for the, the listeners, and 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 I want you to be part of each of these segments because it's really important to hear what a lender has to think. Um, you know, we're we're the equity guys. We're optimists. Everything's going up, and uh, the banks. You have to worry about when things go down, and uh, how do you protect yourself, and how do you work with a private equity sponsor to. You know, feel good about you know the, the the structure of the deal and the progress of a deal and how that communication should work, maybe and how it really hasn't worked in the past. So uh, we want to end with the fourth segment here as our famous hall of fame and hall of shame, where we talk a little bit about the examples of you know good situations and then bad situations, and sometimes it's the bank that can screw up and sometimes it's the company you know, the company founder that can screw up and. We'd uh, like to talk about both examples here. So before we get too deep into it, Matt, can, can you just give a little bit of your background and the kind of work that you did? How, how did you get into commercial lending? As a, how does one become a commercial banker other than a love of uh, playing golf? Well, <laughs> well, there is that, uh, specifically on Friday afternoons. But, um, 
you know, I, I kind of stumbled into it on accident. I, uh, I graduated college um, pretty naive, I would probably say, saying I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, uh, but I didn't, I didn't know particularly what uh, type of business I wanted to uh, start or run or be a part of. And so I said to myself, well, I'll go figure out how everybody else is making money. Uh, and I'll, the best way to do that is to go become a banker. And so um, got a job here uh, locally in Phoenix. Uh, I'm a Phoenician born and raised. And and um, before you know it, about 15 years later, I, I woke up and uh, I'm, I'm now probably a career banker at this point. And so, um, you know, you kind of start out the process uh, kind of learning credit and learning, um, you know, to your point, the downside. Uh, that's kind of where all banks uh, kind of start out uh, an analysis and then kind of shift focus to the upside and, and see what um see what opportunities are there for both the bank and and your ultimate borrower and um and you know and then of course here I am today 15 years later doing uh focusing on companies um you know with uh with revenues uh anywhere from 10 million to 200 million and and uh cash flow from uh greater than zero you know all the way up to call it 15 million bucks in EBITDA so that's that's kind of where I sit today Great, great. Well, you know that um, I guess 15 years qualifies you as experienced, and I guess I'm going on 30 years. That's bordering on ancient. So uh, a lot's happened in in 30 years and 15 years. I know that when I got started in the business, and there were a lot more banks back then, that the, the consolidation was just beginning. It you always had the the joke about the 363 bankers. You know that you know it was a pretty simple equation. You know you ended up. Uh, you know, borrowing money at three percent, loaning it at six percent, and then being on the golf course by three. So <laughs> it, it it was perceived to be a sleepy business, and then I think with the regulation and all that happened with the RTC, and you know the whole risk profile, of the industry changed, and then they had to chase yield, and they ended up uh, as a result of Glass Steagall trying to generate more fee-related businesses, and then and grew and grew and grew, and the business, you know, ultimately you know, ultimately separated uh, and became kind of more fragmented in a way. Uh, what I like about Alliance Bank and my experience, just and you talk a little bit about next period, but they, they uh, along with a handful of other, you know, Arizona banks, figured out early that uh, there was more to lending than real estate, which is kind of the, both the curse and the, and the gift of Arizona that's been a very successful town for real estate developers, but then corporate credits... Uh, you know, didn't get a lot of attention, and then you guys really turned that around uh, in the last since certainly since the debt crisis in 2009, and and now there's a handful of really high quality regional banks here in town, of which you're one. You know, generating you know a pretty significant sponsor coverage effort, and really understanding corporate credits, because I think what happened in the banking universe is that um, everyone was running away from all kinds of credits in you know 08 and 09, and then. Around the middle to late 10, they, they woke up and said, wait, um, you know, there's been almost no defaults despite this downturn in our corporate credit portfolio. We saw, you know, it was interesting. I heard from a couple of our senior lenders at the time that their default rate, you know, maybe went up, you know, slightly. And the loss rate, you know, went up maybe by a fraction of a point. So I think the banking community ultimately woke up and said, gee, you know, although we don't have quote-unquote appraised collateral, which has proved to be a, a bit of a joke in the real estate market, um, we, we really have a pretty strong business. And when a business is worth $50 million and we're loaning $20 million or whatever the ratio is, 
I guess it's it's we're not that at risk as we thought, and so um, particularly for cash flowing businesses with assets and all that. So it, I've seen a dramatic turnaround in the regional banks in the last five or ten years, and and becoming you know, very good partners for private equity, whereas historically they were you know kind of sleepy. Um, and I think when we get into the next episode, I want you to you know spend more time about you know how Alliance Bank made that decision and and shifted resources into this area because it's you know certainly been a, a big improvement from you know our our industry's viewpoint and um, you know adding to you know the mix of lending options and we'll talk a little bit about um, other options you know and we're going to bring other experts on we've had mezzanine experts we're going to talk a little bit about what they call the one stops and the BDCs and a lot of the people that are competing with you and I want to understand how does Alliance Bank compete against those kinds of lenders why should a private equity group choose you and uh, and, and what is it that the company should be thinking about the cost benefit of uh, a relationship you know with a traditional bank like yourself versus the, you know, these other competitors out there which are obviously offering you know maybe a little more flexibility or something and uh, you know you can help us evaluate evaluate those things um, what else would you like to cover here on the call related to lending in the debt markets? Uh, did I miss anything in that in that overview? Um, anyone no, you want to pick? I, I, Feel free to pick on anyone you like. I, I think you uh, you touched on it pretty well. You know, I think a lot of banks, um, to your point, you know, real estate values uh, in many ways are, are dictated by appraisal prices, and um, and uh, you don't have as much flexibility uh, within a bank relative to the type of deals that you can do, et cetera. Now, when you move over to a company that's actually making something or actually producing something and, and contributing to the overall GDP, um, you know, there's there's a lot more flexibility in terms of what type of Structures you can do, how you, um, uh, how sticky a particular customer is, right? A, a real estate transaction, you know, on average turns over every five years. Um, you know, private equity uh, companies sometimes they turn over three years, sometimes they turn over seven. Um, uh, but in many cases, even when the company turns over, uh, they maintain uh, a relationship with you kind of long term. And and so from that perspective, I think it's extremely valuable and a lot of banks have recognized that y- you can't just grow uh, solely by commercial real estate it's nice you get well, you get big loans let, well let's and, talk uh, sorry about this we got a commercial break coming up Matt but let's talk okay. about how Alliance Bank is attacking this market when uh, when we're back in uh, two minutes Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan, set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning into Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. Welcome back, folks. Uh, Kevin Peckmeyer here with uh, Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. I've got Matt James, a banker at Alliance Bank. And we're talking about Alliance Bank and how they compete for uh, the lending business. You know, what, you know where, where do they win? Where do they lose? Why are they better? Why are they, where they don't compete? And, and then we're going to talk about how we work with founders to pick banks. And then that's going to come out of this next discussion. Uh, Matt, uh, talk a little bit about Alliance Bank and where you see kind of the best fit and where do you compete for business and how do you compete against your, your other other lenders? Sure. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> Alliance Bank is a, a $20 billion bank. So our, our dry powder to do <clears throat> deals, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, ranges pretty significantly from, you know, some of the smaller EBITDA companies, you know, Tipping down to two million dollars in, in EBITDA, which you know puts you at about a six, uh, six or seven million dollar debt load, all the way up to um, we have deals in our portfolio that you know we're up to thirty million dollars plus, and um, and, we're, and we're not alone. There's there's a lot of banks, uh, there's a lot of non-bank lenders, um, and there's just a lot of players in this particular space uh, relative to uh, both private equity groups and lenders that are out there. Alliance, primarily, I would say, our kind of strong suit, uh, we try to focus, um, our, well, our relationship starts typically with the private equity group. The private equity group that, um, it, you know, has a relationship with a bank or a banker, and um, we usually try to follow those um, those individuals wherever they go. If they want to buy a, a company, a distribution company in Texas, we'll look at that. If they want to buy something a little bit more closer that's a, you know, a manufacturer or something here in Arizona or a, a franchise deal up in, in uh, Washington, we, 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 we pride ourselves on, on following the private equity group first um, and then look at the business like we would look at uh, any other particular business. And um, I think those relationships is kind of where Alliance Bank as a whole and uh, specifically here in the in the leverage lending group, you know, we we are able to capitalize on some deals that um, 
maybe other banks are looking at from a perspective of, you know, they're looking at, you know, hundreds of deals from different private equity groups and, and they, they're focused more on the company. Um, we, we think um, both from a company perspective and a private equity perspective that if, if those two match um, and we have alignment with the private equity group, that uh, that deal will eventually work out for all of us. Um, you know, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of factors that go into selecting a bank, whether it's price, whether it's structure, um, whether it's, uh, you know, relationship, do you get along with your banker, et cetera. And, and I've always kind of found out or I've always kind of found that the best chance for you to succeed when you hire a private equity guy is to or get take money from a private equity and take money from a bank is to have uh, a real understanding up front what the agreed upon path for the company is over the next five to seven years. I see a lot of people that they take the highest price. I see a lot of people that they take the lowest interest rate. And in many circumstances, that ends up not being the best fit. Um, you're, you're bringing on partners that have not been involved in your business previously. There's going to be some hiccups along the way. And you want to understand how both a bank and a private equity partner are going to react in those type of scenarios. You know, banks are heavily regulated institutions. And uh, Kevin's comment earlier about there's some things that are outside of uh, their control. There's some things that are outside of our control. We certainly are playing within a, a box that is set up to, uh, you know, protect the depositors of our institution. Um, but at the same time, uh, you want a bank that's willing to work with you and uh, in in terms of a, in a downside and be able to provide additional funding for you on the upside. And so I think where Alliance, that's kind of where Alliance um, seems to have the most success is when it really comes across to the, to the seller, um, you know, that this is going to be a team effort and that we're investors and that we're going to be on the same page and they're not looking at it as just a way to, to cash a check and uh, kind of move on their way and, and only half participate in their business going forward. So, um, you know, well, we, uh, yeah, we, we, we hear you on that front because uh, when we've made the mistake ourselves of choosing the, lo- choosing the lowest rate, um, there's always a catch. <laughs> always is. So we find that we uh, we might save 50 basis points on interest and then we, we pay for it other in other ways, less flexibility and just it's a different it's a different equation sometimes and they, they it's easy to miss the intangibles. One of, one of the things that our, our founders get really excited about and put it on the table here is the fact that when we get involved and purchase a material stake in their company or a majority stake in their company, partnering with them and you know, they get they get their money off the table. They get to diversify their assets. To, you know, a lot of folks have, you know, really, you know, goals for their money, whether it's philanthropic or family education, and they're pleased to get that that you know money in their pocket. And it's usually millions of dollars. Are, you know, typically our you know executives and founders are receiving anywhere from two to twenty-five million, um, occasionally more, but a lot of them are rolling in large amounts too. And the banks uh, are willing to not have personal guarantees after we get involved because it's an institutionally backed company. That's important um, and, and important for the founder in many cases. Uh, they, uh, they also like the fact that the rate can go down. So I still remember when we partnered with a, a janitorial services company years back called Sanators and the founder was ecstatic to get off the personal guarantee and then we ended up going out with our partners at the time, which is Summit Partners, a very large and successful Boston-based firm, and uh, 
they were able to get the rate down by 150 basis points from what he was paying without the personal guarantee. So he, he was a, he was ecstatic, um, and that obviously that company ended up being very successful, growing from 26 million to 170 million by the time we sold it, and then ultimately uh, when it sold to ISS North America years back, it then I think was over 400 million dollars, and and you know the, the success story there continued, and you know the partners multiplied their money on that and everyone did well but uh, the bank was protected it was a leverage buyout but the bank was largely protected because a, a firm with a high reputation um, I'd like to think it was us as well as uh, some of the partners but I'm not kidding ourselves you know we had just getting we were just getting started back then um, but today you know we've been able to establish you know our good relationships with over 15 banks including Alliance and uh, and and that that's helped. And you know, again, we've. They, I think part of the success and the reason that that banks are. You know, and you can speak to this. You know, later how you view it. But I think part of the success we've had is over 15 years. Knock on wood. We you know we haven't lost investors' money, and we have never failed to pay back a dollar of debt. And I think that counts um, for that reputationally counts. You know, with with senior lenders as well. And uh, fortunately, you know that that takes years to build, but. Um, that accrues the benefit accrues to the founders and, and the people in the company that uh, you know can can sleep at night. <laughs> They've got a lot of equity risk usually of their own. A lot of their net worth remains in the company, so I, I think the motivation to pay back the loan is is always going to be very high because we're always underneath the senior bank. You want to comment a little bit on that and how Alliance Bank yeah. looks at that? Yeah, I. I um I kind of echo your sentiments that that's a that's a big win for uh, the seller of uh, a company, especially since uh, by definition uh, you're going to be adding probably a lot more leverage than uh, is currently on your books today, and so the idea of having to personally guarantee that may be stalling your efforts in terms of uh, going down that process with a private equity group. But I would tell you that um, you know it, it's pretty much a, a non conversation. You know, banks, one of the things banks look at for private equity deals, uh, to Kevin's point, which is, you know, ha- has a private equity group ever uh, stiffed a bank? Uh, I think that plays a, a big factor in um, the decision to lend both uh, to a company and, and uh, to back a sponsor. Uh, but in addition to that, um, you know, by definition, they have a lot more access to capital. And when things are going rough, um, it's nice to have a partner in there that uh, knows the markets, has access to, to outside liquidity, whether it's within the fund that they've invested, that or you know additional investment, or access to you know other type of lending sources uh, plays a, plays a big decision uh, is a big decision making um, factor uh, when you're when you're talking about uh, putting. Up leverage on a on a buyout so i think um your, your point is well taken and is something that all um, owners that uh, are worried about that can uh, safely put to bed what now talk a little bit about the other, the other alternatives we've got you know three minutes left on this session but who are your uh, companies or clients prospective clients talking to when they're comparing you to other debt options talk a little bit about sure. what you're seeing so um, there's really kind of three players. Uh, there's the kind of your tri- traditional banks. There's uh, your traditional mezzanine players that usually come in with 
interest-only loans, uh, but a much higher interest rate. <clears throat> and then what they call unitronche players that are kind of a blend. There's, there's uh, my debt, so obviously amortizing. The mezzanine guys is not, and the unitronche player has a little bit of a lower rate, higher than the bank, but less than the mez, and also has a little bit of amortization. And and those are the ones that you're competing against. And in many cases, it's based upon your business model and what type of, you know, capital structure you're really, um, you know, you're really looking for both you and the, the private equity group. And um, it's a very competitive market. There's a lot of money out there in all, in all facets from that perspective. Why, why, why so. should they pick Alliance? Uh, give, me, give me an example where you won uh, in a competitive bid. Um, in the two examples I can think of right off the top of my head, I think um, I've had experience uh, executing on deals that may have had what we would call hair in the industry or much more receptive to uh, stories. Um, you know, if there's uh, a story behind a particular deal that uh, some institutional players wouldn't look at. And at the end of the day, I think access to uh, executive management. We have a very low, <clears throat> you know, not a, not a whole bunch of vendor management in this bank. It's, it's only right down the street. Uh, or excuse me, right down the, the hallway to the chief credit officer. And uh, I think that um, at the end of the day, people people value being able to make quick decisions and being able to execute on what you're telling you're going to execute. Well, that that's absolutely critical. We'll go and we're, we're going to jump in the in the fourth in the fourth segment here to the Hall of Fame, Hall of Shame. But I got to tell you, we've had some tough lessons, uh, you know, over probably two dozen credits in the last decade, different bank relationships and uh, in two cases that should remain nameless, uh, we had some really scary, uh, uh, you, know, I could, you know, periods of when, when they go dark. You know, we, we, we lost our credit relationship officer. No, no one really was, was doing any, uh, you know, communication with our CFO and our CEO on a regular basis. And we didn't know. We, we knew that there was, in both cases, banks were under some regulatory pressure. There were some internal pressures. And literally, they just went dark, and there were about four layers between us and, and the decision makers, and that was where you know companies get scared because you know there, there's a handful of stories out there where the bank just came in to to you know collect their loan and didn't give the time for the company to do it in order fashion, and trouble emerged. So we'll talk a little bit about that in our Hall of Fame, Hall of Shame later. But I want to spend the next episode talking about how we select lenders, and then you can tell me how you would respond to our questions in that area. So the break's coming up, and Matt, again, thank you. Thank you. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. 
How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. Welcome back. This is Kevin Peckmeyer, and I'm here with Matt James, who's a lender with Alliance Bank. And we're going to talk about how we pick banks. And then, uh, Matt, I'm going to try to use a, a, an out-of-state uh, East Coast company that I'm aware of as an example um, so that you don't feel like your feelings were hurt because we didn't call you. So uh, we, uh, we actually had, uh, you know, this is going back a number of years. We had a bake-off for a $40 million buyout that um, – we were participating in and, you know, we saw a lot of aggressive bidding from very high quality groups, big banks, regional banks. And, uh, you know, we were putting about 20 million in uh, of our own money with uh, a, uh, both uh, equity, you know, partners, uh, you know, my, my partner, uh, two other partners that, that, you know, joined with me uh, personally and uh, bringing in a mezzanine group, which we, you know, we've got about, you know, several I think we've got eight, nine, or ten mezzanine groups we've worked with in the past, and a handful are very uh, kind of go-to calls. So we we put together the first twenty million, and then we, in fact, we had management participate with us as usual. We always have management, uh, you know, with at least twenty to forty percent of the company. We want them to have a material stake. In a couple of cases, they actually have a majority. But uh, we got down to the the business of picking a bank, which uh, was tough. I got to tell you, we, you know. 10, 15, 20 years ago, I used to go out and we'd call 10 or 20 banks. We'd get three term sheets, four term sheets. You know, we went out to like four banks this time. We got six term sheets. I don't know how that happened. Uh, apparently, one bank found out or somebody found out. They called other banks who unsolicited came in with a term sheet. So, you can tell that the, the, the supply capital is and the supply demand equation is greatly shifted in terms of debt capital over the last uh, decade. Um, yeah, and we had a, a, we had a one-stop, we had a you know, couple commercial banks, we had a regional and, a, and, and two majors. So we, we had a, a wide selection of, of uh, alternatives to choose from. Um, boy, it was tough. And uh, we worked with our founders. There were a handful of you know, key executives we worked with and they were, um, they were kind of amazed. We were able to get uh, really strong uh, term sheets, and including the existing bank, the bank who had been a prior lender to the company. So, as I looked at that, you know, that competitive environment, uh, I was amazed, you know, how things had changed from the downturn. Um, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, even. You know, the, there was a very different equation. Tell me, what are you seeing? How competitive is the market for deals today, and how many competitors? 
do you have in a in a given you know credit today? Is, is it, well, you seen the same thing? Uh, absolutely, it's it's probably fivefold of what it was back in uh, even kind of the 2006 time frame. Um, and what you're seeing is a lot of these these banks are, are going downstream in terms of uh, minimum EBITDA numbers. And, um, you know, kind of historically, the big banks, you know, they focused on uh, companies with $10 million and EBITDA and above. And, and that number's kind of slowly shifted down. So us regional banks who are always playing in kind of a, a, a lower space than that, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of a lot of um, competi- competitiveness from the big banks. Um, you mentioned your one stop. We're seeing a lot of those. Um, the mezzanine players, uh, I'd say that's probably still, um, you know, they're they're still participating at the same level, and they'd obviously pair with the senior bank. But the one stops in particular are getting a lot more aggressive, and um, as interest rates rise, their interest rates don't seem to rise. And so uh, the difference between um, kind of our rates at the at the bank level and the, the one stops uh, seem to be compressed, which obviously is, is causing even more competition. So very competitive. What's the rate differential? I mean, go from high to low. What are you seeing bank one stop meds? Where's the where's the, the band? Um, today, you know, I, I, uh, today, I'd say you're, you know, your, your bank's probably in the uh, kind of I'll use all in rates, right? Your bank's probably in the four to four and a half to maybe five percent range. Um, your one stops kind of in your you know nine range, eight to nine range, and and then your your mes players, um, you know, kind of in the twelve to fourteen range. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, the, the mes and the and the the one stop guys, um, they were a lot higher. And as rates um, we go as as rates go up here at the bank, um, our cost of funds go up, and we we have to move up, and because um, otherwise it doesn't work, our model doesn't work, and others um, still uh, still can keep them at the same rates. So it's it's definitely compressing. Probably been a one to two percent swing over the past twenty four months. I mean, we got a, a term sheet on that deal I was referring to, and and. and you know the the formula AR and inventory would have gotten us to about sixteen twenty you know, maybe eighteen million. Um, you know, and, and we didn't even draw that, and we uh, ended up also getting one stop. And, and this was, I think, call it a five to eight million dollar kind of company, depending on which year you looked at. And we got uh, one stop term sheets for twenty four million dollars, over four and a half times trailing EBITDA. I was amazed. Now the rates at that time were pretty high. Um, you know, in the range you're talking about. I think all in, you know, it was eight something. And uh, the bank came in very competitively with a term sheet or the term loan plus revolver availability, not far off. Uh, but they, but, and, and, and don't, you know, don't, don't wet your pants on this one, but boy, it, it was scary. We, we had, you know, top tier management, top tier credits. We ended up with, uh, at that point, 225 over at LIBOR. And uh, no fee, and, and no fees other than a small funding fee. Um, so it was pretty amazing how competitive that process was, because I think you know the lenders saw that we you know we had the potential to double the credit, and because you know, our average company's grown about 350 percent. So I think they viewed it as an investment in a growing company. I don't honestly know how they made money on it. Um, ultimately, um, you know they got out of the credit and were successful in that and. 
you know, things went really well. Um, but boy, you know, that they, they took some risk, including the air ball. And we'll talk, you can talk about what, what an air ball is and how you guys view it. But they competed with the one stop really effectively. Um, and about, like I said, half the rate or less. So um, I don't know if you see that kind of differential in, in your market. And, you know, this was a pretty bulletproof company um, in terms of quality and stability. But have you seen that kind of differential in your deal competitions? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that that sounds like it was a pretty rock solid deal. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, LIBOR, uh, LIBOR 300 today is about a 400, 4%, 4.5%. I actually didn't check my, my LIBOR uh, rates today, but, um, you know, that's uh, that's where we're playing. Back in the day, I would say, you know, three years ago, we were at LIBOR 350, LIBOR 375 with a, with a full uh, point on some of our deals, and that's just not competitive when, when there's multiple players, not only banks and, and the Unitron lenders um, kind of involved. So let me ask, let me ask this question is for back to you relative to your decision making process on the unit tranche versus the senior debt why you know it sounds like that rate was pretty low but what were some of the advantage of the unit tranche uh, lender if let's say you know the rate was a little bit closer uh, at the end of the day what, what no, made you no, go with the bank or unit tranche well the unit tranche has no amortization so they were and they were actually taking out all or most of the mez and I've heard, I'd like to see if you've ever bid to take out the mess too, but we, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, people, you know, going up to 24 million would have taken out the need for any mezzanine. So you had to look at a 12% mezzanine for some and then the, you know, 4% senior and you blend it and they were competitive with a blended rate, which is how they'll, they'll promote it. I think, you know, we wanted a, a little more expandable line because Unitronch has a issue growing sometimes it, you know, you you have to do a full refi if you end up buying a company or growing, and and we just thought it was a little less flexible um, for what we wanted, and you know with the the blended rate we we just decided to go with the the two tier structure, but have you ever taken out mez? Have you ever bid to take the whole piece and and squeeze the mez out? Is that something Alliance has ever done? Yeah, um, we certainly uh, we look at it all the time. I think um, you know I referenced in the earlier segment that we are somewhat restricted uh, in terms of uh, the box that uh, we can play with. Um, I know that uh, you know, and, and really, it's a function of leverage. Um, you know, uh, ultimately, cash flow and ability to repay back. Um, but uh, you know, to a certain extent, we're limited in the in the total leverage um, total leverage that we can put on a company uh, as dictated by uh, our friendly regulators and so let, let, uh, let me go. I'm sorry go ahead go ahead no I, I was going to say in many cases we do end up um, you know uh, we have not actually purchased or put um, you know mezzanine debt on uh, a a particular company, we we don't have that ability. Although I know um, some larger banks do, um, but we do sometimes structure, um, and this is coming back in vogue uh, with uh, what we would call a, a term A and a term B. Which um, a term B mm-hmm. has a very low amortization, <clears throat> about one percent, and it has an excess cash flow sweep that uh, um, 
you know, amortizes the loan down uh, with the excess money that you make at the end of the year. So uh, those are coming back and uh, certainly um, can help. Um, there's various metrics that are required in order to get that type of financing. But um, you know, are you are you, are you constrained by the three by four? Um, the last question here before we break. But are you constrained or guided by the three by four, the three times, four times? Limits. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think we're constrained by it, but we're certainly um, we're certainly uh, aware of it. And uh, just for the audience, that's three times uh, senior, four times total debt, uh, times EBITDA. So a five million dollar EBITDA company would be restricted to you know three times senior, fifteen million, and four times or twenty million total debt. That's that's how we're we're seeing banks indicate to us that's where they start to get resistance on you know, going much above that. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's an accurate statement. Our, our, our cost of capital, the monitoring, uh, everything else goes up when uh, you're, you're bumping up against that or go over that. doesn't mean we can't do okay. a deal over that, but it certainly uh, dictates the type of structure and to a certain extent the type of pricing that uh, you can expect to see from a bank term sheet. Okay. Good, good. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that in the next episode, but uh, I think we're on to our Hall of Fame, Hall of Shame in our final segment. So uh, now the commercial break. Uh, talk to you in two minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. 
Hello, this is Kevin Beckmeyer. We're back for our final segment uh, here on Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code. We've got Matt James from Alliance Bank. And uh, our favorite segment is, of course, the Hall of Fame and Hall of Shame. And we're talking about lenders, in particular, the art of managing debt and, and lenders in general. But I'll, I'll got to kick off. Uh, you know, we, we avoid certain lenders, Matt, like the plague. Um, and it just takes a couple bad stories circulating around the market to, to, to steer clear. There was, you know, a couple, you know, come to mind. One uh, was a major uh, one-stop lender, you know, multi-billion dollar organization has kind of achieved legendary status for stiffing their clients <laughs> and uh, extracting fees, et cetera. Um, and uh, again, we had a local company here, actually a pretty large Goldman-backed company that, uh the founders were able to, you know, work and refinance them out. But um, boy, it was a, a harrowing, and and uh, I can't go into the details there. But I, I can go into the details of another local company that brought in a, an SBIC lender, and it was a classic case of of non communication. They they didn't get their financials out on time. I think it was 40 days instead of 30 days after month end, and they got a letter saying that they would uh, get default interest for the you know lack of of the clarity. I was like going from 12 to 18%. It was crazy. So they complained and they said, uh, you know, this is unfair. You know, our auditors made us delay the numbers. So they ended up, you know, getting a phone call with the partner at this SBIC and then said, okay, you know, we won't charge it to you. Well, you know, everything they thought was fine, except two and a half years later, as they're refinancing, um, they have the payoff letters distributed at, at the closing day. And sure enough, the SBIC had been charging them default interest for two and a half years. They never stopped. They never said anything. And they said, um, well, go ahead and close the deal. But if you, you're going to need our payoff letter to, uh, to uh, close. And, you know, you actually owe us an extra 6% per year because you were in default because you missed, you know, those two quarters re- reporting deadlines. <laughs> and so... Needless to say, they, they were furious, um, and I remember there was another large firm that came in to bail them out, but it was just stunning that, that they were going to get snookered for default interest for a 10-day filing lapse that uh, was two years old and that they've been, been told verbally. But they unfortunately had them, if you had to get things in writing from people, probably not the right partner, but they were told, yes, it was fine. Well. It was fine because, I guess, in this guy's mind, uh, they were going to continue to get 6%, and uh, they were entitled to that, you know, technically without a written waiver, and they never got the written waiver. So they, you know, they ended up a million eight or million eight, whatever, million six, million eight of extra interest. Furious. Absolutely furious. So tell, tell me, that's a hall of shame, and uh, you, you can give me some of your hall of shame, too. What, what's your story? Well, um, mine's, well mine's, I guess... Uh, somewhat tied to reputation. I mean, I think we talked about the reputation of uh, private equity groups here, but um, uh, in an earlier segment. But uh, mine revolves around uh, you know at the end of the day they they always teach in banking school the four C's of credit, and number one is always character. And um, we've had uh, uh, I've had a couple deals unfortunately where the character of um, the selling party um, was not the best, and uh, I have learned some lessons from that. I, I it, you know, in this particular case, the one that comes to mind, this guy um, had heard from his buddy, excuse me, that um, 
he had heard from his buddy that uh, once a private equity group comes in and, and pays you uh, a certain amount, um, that you basically wait out your uh, tenure, run the company into a ground, and uh, then when it's uh, in bankruptcy, you can buy it back at a, at a cheaper price. And um, we actually heard about this particular scenario uh, at a dinner that was closing. And um, that was the closing dinner. So about nice. one month after uh, we closed the deal with this guy, this is the commentary that he decided to share with his lenders uh, and the private equity group at, at the table. And um, that should have been a, a big warning sign because that was uh, that deal ended up um, uh, not going so well. That being said, um, he did not end up uh, owning the company. Uh, he ended up getting fired a year later. Um, and um, the private equity group was actually able to put in some additional money, turn the company around from all the damage that he had done, and, um, and subsequently uh, returned all their money to their investors. So that was, uh, that was a scenario that was uh, not the best for, uh, for a banking or a private equity group. And unfortunately, sometimes you won't know that stuff uh, until after the fact, but uh, certainly try to do a lot of diligence and a lot of background checks on uh, the people that uh, we're getting in business with. Yeah, I think that you guys are in the same business we are effectively when it comes to the four C's. Um, we, uh, we've only had one fraud in 27 years, and it was, you know, bitter experience many years ago. And, and you just, you, your radar's up, and uh, a bank, I'm sure, has the same radar that we do. If you feel like there's a disingenuous you know, party on the other end, you just, you just walk away. Uh, I can in the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, in addition to our good experience with you, on um, our restaurant portfolio company, which we, we really applaud you, uh, you know, for your you know timeliness, you know, flexibility, and all that. Uh, we've also had some you know good experiences with other banks. We've had situations where, you know, and I'll use another bank, Academy Bank, who had banked our uh, chemical company many years ago, and in the downturn, we had a, a very tough quarter, and they called us, and they you know, we worked it out. We we had a you know very strong partnership uh, in the investor group. Uh, you know, our board uh, was very close and supportive of management, but recession was tough. We had, we, we, we broke the covenants. We didn't miss payment, but we broke covenant for two quarters. And they negotiated very fairly that, you know, we were going to defer our sub-debt interest and our uh, management fee uh, 50% for one quarter and 100% for the next quarter and then make it up on the third and fourth quarter. When, and it took us three quarters to get back in compliance. We did. They were they, they were very upfront. They called us. They negotiated. We we came to an amicable agreement, and then it, it, it became a very successful credit for them. And uh, and up and down, you know, they've been you know, very positive, you know, in our relationship uh, with that company. And uh, we like the regional banks, and, and there's been some good, you know, large banks as well. We've had some good experiences with larger banks, but I got to tell you that it, that's the kind of relationship you want, where you can develop a, a dialogue, and things don't go quite right, and then you work things out. You hear about it. So the, I can tell you we're in situations with large center, you know, large banks that, that don't have that dialogue and don't have that relationship and flexibility. What's, what's your Hall of Fame? Do you have any of those? Yeah, well, I would, um, you know, just to touch on that briefly, I mean, I think that's one of the advantages that all regional banks have is um, the flexibility and the 
the culture, I think, matters a lot for the bank. Um, I think having access to um, executive management, the decision makers on a particular credit, you know, bankers come and go, um, you know, and at the end of the day, you want to make sure that uh, you're not just tied in with the bank, you're tied in with a, uh, excuse me, a banker, you're tied in with the bank. And uh, in that particular scenario, you know, that's that's something that Alliance tries to strive for. Um, you know, a deal that I did in 2013, actually just when I got here, um, did not start out too well, uh, specifically as it related to uh, the Mez lender that we had. Um, company was, uh, had a, a model got, where they we were got like one, going got, to... Sir, we got um, one minute go here, Matt, so keep ahead, talk Kevin. fast. No, we got one minute, so talk fast. <laughs> okay. So, um, long story uh, short, uh, basically, bank work to help uh, take out some of the mess, find a different mess player at a lower amount, and um, and really kind of help save the company and the private equity uh, relationship. And uh, turned out to be a home run that uh, returned ten times the money five years later. So it was uh, mm. it was a rocky start, but uh, communication and uh, a bank partner kind of helped them all reap the rewards. I love it. Well, that's a great story, and uh, we'll go into more detail later in the next banking episode. And uh, your your time and participation are well appreciated, Matt. Thanks uh, to you and Alliance, and my best to your president, Ed Zito, an old friend. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for tuning in to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Be sure to join Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team 6 for another edition next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a nice week.